Good afternoon and welcome to Focused on Forward. Today I have the pleasure of talking with Larry Sprung. The reason why we're talking to Larry is that Larry has had a loss in his family. His, his brother-in-law took his own life some years ago. And Larry talks about how that affected him, his family, and how he has chosen to become focused on forward. So we're very excited to have Larry here today to tell us his story. And, and uh, so Larry, thank you. Thank you for being here and thank you for being willing to share your story with us. Tim, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. And uh, yeah, I look forward to uh, sharing with your audience and I hope they uh, get a lot out of it. That's, that's my goal. All right, cool. So what we'll do, Larry, is I'm just going to turn the floor over to you. Please include us in your story. Yeah, so just to give your listeners a little background as, uh, you know, why I'm here today, if you will. Uh, you know, my brother-in-law, Keith Milano, uh, he was, uh, you know, diagnosed with bipolar disorder prior to 2004. And uh, un unfortunately, you know, he tried and struggled uh, to get well. Uh, myself included, my family all tried to help him as much as we possibly can uh, or could. My, my wife used to actually go with him to, uh, to meetings uh, with his uh, psychiatrist to help him even and lend some support. Uh, un unfortunately, you know, just to kind of give you a little preface uh, leading up to him dying by suicide back in September of 2004, the April prior, he was uh, hospitalized uh, during a holiday weekend, I believe it was Easter weekend. And unfortunately, that had a, you know, tremendous effect on him, we think, uh, on his state and where he was feeling and, and what his prognosis was for the future, because the, uh, the hospital that he was uh, put on a hold in because he had uh, threatened to potentially hurt himself, because it was a holiday weekend, they decided to condense two floors during that weekend, which basically they took a floor for people who suffer from mental illness that were not uh, as um, as exacerbated with their diagnosis and combine them with folks that were significantly worse than my brother-in-law with regard to their mental state and capacity, schizophrenic, psychotic, things like that. And, you know, we visited him during that weekend. And unfortunately, I remember like it was yesterday, we were sitting at the table and he was looking around and he's like, guys, he's like, this is not going to happen to me. I can't get this bad. And, you know, I think that left an indelible mark upon him uh, in his quest to get well. And in some regards, I don't know if that was a situation where he kind of felt that this was the path he was on, whether he was or he wasn't, you know, I think it left a mark on him. And it left a mark on us too, because we were like, you know, we were very optimistic. We didn't feel that he was going down that path. But, uh, you know, again, you never know. He was doing the right things that he needed to do to get help. Uh, he was seeing the doctor, taking medications. But, you know, he used to describe his illness to us like if you wake up every morning with the flu and you have 103, 104 degree fever, that's how he felt. He felt like his body hurt, he, he ached. And he was a young guy, 27, very well built, uh, used to go to the gym religiously and, uh, you know, worked out consistently. And unfortunately, when uh, September rolled around, uh, you know, he ended up dying by suicide. And, uh, you know, we're talking about a guy which, 
you know, isn't uncommon to a lot of folks that you hear these stories about. He was the life of the party, uh, you know, unlike other diseases that are right. out there, you know, like cancer, for example, if somebody has cancer, you can tell there's something wrong at some point when they're going through treatments or having radiation or something like that. But when it comes down to mental illness, it's very difficult to see that physical, you know, issue. So absolutely. Yeah. People didn't realize anything was wrong with them, you know, right. right. Lack of clear physical signs. Correct. He was the life at a party. Like I said, he'd go out to the Hamptons here on Long Island on the weekends during the summer, go out to the Bordy Barn, which is a very popular place. And he'd dress up as Superman. And, uh, you know, to this day, we still run into people that's, you know, when uh, they're like, oh, yeah, I know Keith. He, you know, used to dress up as Superman. Superman, they, they knew him as uh, as such. So, you know, it left an indelible mark, obviously, on everybody. And unfortunately, you know, for whatever reason, he felt like there was no uh, there, there was no way out. And, um, you know, unfortunately, he died by suicide. And then it came to a point where, you know, we had to start moving forward and focus on forward like your show is called and, and figure out where do we go from there. OK, so what was the now? And this may seem like a uh, a pretty obvious question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. What was the initial impact to you and your family? Well, you know, I wish I could tell you a definitive answer to that, right? Because as I think back and I thought about it a lot, it's, you know, a bit of a blur, right? As sure. far as how that all happens. But, you know, for for me personally, I can tell you that, I never was exposed to somebody who had mental illness and then eventually died from that mental illness, meaning I, I was never really exposed to somebody personally that died by suicide. And to me, I never made the connection, I don't think, uh, up until that point that somebody can die from mental illness. Okay. And, you know, that had an impact on me. And I think, you know, other family members, obviously, you know, there's a void there. You start going through the process of, you know, could we have done things differently? Was there any stone that we left unturned? And, you know, arguably, we've gone through that a number of times over the years. And the reality is we really did everything that we possibly could up until to and including, you know, my wife and I spoke to my brother-in-law the, the night of or the night before, however you want to look at it. He called our house that evening and uh, I had a conversation with him and so did my wife. And then he was gone the next morning. So, you know, I think you start doing all those normal things, looking back, you know, what could have been done differently. And I, you know, I think that the only thing that potentially my wife and I have ever come up with that, you know, what, knowing what we know now, what would we have done differently? The only thing potentially would have been to really push him into some kind of treatment center. Um, you know, some private pay, which has a lot of challenges, right? You have mm -hmm. a challenge of being able to afford it and pay that bill, which right. sure we would have figured out a way to do that part. But even harder than that is finding the right place, correct? Uh, which is hard to navigate, and then finding the right place that also has a bed available and has an opening that uh, he would be able to go to. Um, and when you put those three things together, it becomes quite the challenge to really yes, find, does. find a location. Yeah. 
And, you know, looking back, my wife was in the process of trying to find a place, but we couldn't. And that's probably the only thing we would have done uh, differently uh, looking back. And the reality is it may or may not ended up in the same result when, you know, when all said and done, who knows? Cause I can't, you know, I wasn't in his head to explain what he was feeling beyond what he told us. Like, uh, for example, waking up every day and feeling like he had 103, 104 fever in the flu. Yeah. And, and that's the thing right now is even in, in nowadays. And so we're talking what, 17 years later, right. You know, we're talking 17 years later, there's still a difficulty with finding that level of care for someone who's going through that. So, you know, the fact that you um, were, were even thinking about it at that point and trying to, to look for something at that point didn't mean it was going to happen or that it could have happened uh, for you. Be, you know, the likelihood uh, of finding that even now is a bit like a needle in a haystack. Right. Uh, because there, there's just not enough uh, help for those who are, are struggling with and going through mental uh, health issues. So, because again, it's the, you can't see it from the outside. We, I think, you know, a lot of times we tend to treat things from the outside. Oh, well, you have this scratch, you have this broken bone. We can see that that's, he's got a cast on it. Something happened. Right. You know? Uh, and, yeah. I've said it before. I think it's so weird that in a, uh, in a society that we live in that your brain, your eyes and your teeth aren't really considered part of your health insurance for whatever reason. I don't know how that works, but those three things, especially the brain seem pretty vital to your, to your health and your circumstances. But yet we have very little, if any coverage for those three things. And the biggest being the brain, which is crazy to me. No, I, I agree with you hundred percent. And frankly, I don't know that I had completely thought about it in that light, but yeah, <laughs> you're absolutely 1000% right. Okay, so let's talk about the afterwards. So in every afterwards, there's, you know, once we've come into a point of, of some, some point of trauma, there's kind of the hill, you know, you lead up to the point of trauma and then there's the come down, there's the dealing with it afterwards. How did you and your wife and your family deal with this, cope with this afterwards? What were the steps that you took? Yeah, I think very much so. We took it in terms of taking it head on. And what I mean by that is, you know, my wife and I made a more or less a resolution together that and and more or less, you know, prior to my brother-in-law's passing, we made a resolution to him that we wouldn't let him go quietly. And what I mean by that is that, you know, if we had a situation where, you know, it was a fatal result like we did, that we were going to tell everybody his story that we possibly could. And not in an effort to, you know, memorialize him, but really in an effort to utilize his story to hopefully help and prevent other people to feel like they have no other options and that, you know, that there's nobody interested in them. And, you know, that's the only result that they can think of. So that's really the path we took. And that's kind of the path we've charged ahead on for a very long time. And one of the first things that we did was we started looking around for organizations. Cause like I said, for me, it was a big eye opener looking at mental health and the number of people that we were running into after my brother-in-law's passing that would quietly come up to us and say, Oh, you know, I, I never told anybody this, but 
my uncle John, you know, same, same story, but, you know, family thinks he uh, crashed into a tree or, you know, my, my uncle Joe uh, family thinks he had a heart attack, not really what happened. And we started hearing a lot of stories of people that had similar facts and circumstances. And it, it was, it, it was crazy to a degree, how many people have been affected by suicide. So we started looking for organizations that we wanted to do some good with and for. And, um, you know, one of the things that really was an eye opener for me at the time in 2004 was we lost at that time about 36, 37,000 people to suicide every year, which was right. the, which was almost the exact number of women we lost to breast cancer at that time. Yes. Breast cancer was getting funding in the billions and mental health and suicide prevention was, you know, a mere fraction of that. So we started looking around and we, we came across an organization called the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, which seemed to be one of the leaders in that space. And it just so happened on Long Island, where we're from, they were having a community walk where they were bringing people who suffered from mental illness or people who lost somebody to suicide. And there were between 500 and 1,000 people that showed up for this walk, which we ended up, you know, we... Uh, we ended up enrolling in, going and raising some funds for. Uh, we had a great number of people that came out to support us. So we felt like we had a lot of support as a family. And from the organization itself, it really opened our eyes as far as realizing how many people are actually affected by mental health and suicide. And uh, it really propelled us to get involved heavily with the, uh, with the AFSP uh, going forward. And that's really where we decided to focus the afterwards was really telling his story, getting it out there, using it as a platform to encourage others to tell their story, not tell their story in the, in the sense that, hey, you know, my uncle Joe had a heart attack. At least that's what we everybody told, we tell everybody, but really tell their story because the more of us that do this, I think it helps alleviate the stigma, kind of brings Wonderful. this comes it out comes out of the darkness and gives others you know hope and the ability to feel comfortable in telling their story and that that's what i think you know what we're focusing on and we focused on from that point uh, to even today well that's great I, you know when we started this show um <laughs> i started it because of, of what happened with my daughter in the hospital and and all that stuff uh, but coming out of it, I thought, well, you know, hey, let's let's talk to other people who have gone through some stuff in their life, and we'll talk about that. To be honest with you, when I started this show, mental health and mental health awareness was not even on the radar, um, for me anyway. Uh, it started coming more and more light because as I was doing this show, and I was, I was going through counseling myself for what we had gone through in the hospital, and I started thinking about, you know, the importance of, well, maybe talking about mental health is important. Maybe, maybe there's some people who wouldn't mind talking about it. And then we had our first guest on uh, uh, episode with a, a good friend of mine named Jason Rogers, who talked about his, his fight every day with bipolar. Uh, he, Jason's a wonderful guy, but you know, no matter how hard he tries, that's still something he's going to have to fight with each and every day. Uh, he deals with that. And, and then we've had a few other guests on. We have recently uh, just posted an interview uh, with a gentleman named Dylan Sessler, uh, uh, which if you're not familiar with Dylan's story, wonderful uh wonderful story now heartbreaking to start with uh but so the, the nice thing about it is that is that 
my show has kind of morphed over time because I've, I've seen the importance of, of talking about mental health and mental health awareness and, and all these things. So that's where guys like you come in. And and I'm so glad to have you on the show today to to talk about this issue, because I, you know, it's one of those things where you you mentioned that key word there, stigma. Mm -hmm. I think that there is such a stigma attached to uh, mental health awareness and, and even talking about suicide and the fact that people will will and can take their own lives because there's not an understanding of where they can go and what they can do and how they can get help uh, and things like that. So let's talk a little bit about your work though with the with the association, the, the organization that you're dealing with. So you can tell us a little bit about what you're doing with them and, and how that relationship has uh, morphed over the years. Yeah, so just if I could touch on the stigma point, uh, yeah, just for just for another moment, you know, absolutely, I, I've had a number of conversations with folks, including my wife, over the last, you know, probably year, year and a half, and I think one of the things that has changed significantly over the last seventeen years or so, you know, sixteen and a half years at this point, uh, is that the number of people coming out and talking about this has increased substantially, oh, and yes. you know, even the you know whether you think they are or not, and whether you look up to them or not, but, you know, you talk about the number of celebrities, uh, you know, there've been a number of uh, athletes, whether it's in the NFL or NHL uh, have come out and talked about mental health as well. And Mm -hmm. I think all of this is leading to a greater good and a greater conversation and a lot has changed. And I kind of wonder, you know, to some degree, if these conversations were happening 17, 18 years ago, you know, if that would have impacted things uh, a little bit differently. But I think the good news is we're making some headway in that department. And again, these people that, you know, there are obviously people that are following them and look up to them as, as long as they're having those conversations, I think it's helpful to make other people feel comfortable that they could come out and talk about their situation. If Michael Phelps can do it, they can do it. You know, absolutely. That, that, that kind of thing. You know, and to your point, honestly, I, I really think that it's unfortunate, but the loss of Robin Williams sure. uh, was huge uh, in this regards, because uh, here's a guy that again, talking about, you know, the same kind of thing about with your brother-in-law, if you looked at him from the outside, uh, Robin Williams was just a barrel of laughs, happy, go lucky, always seemed to be, you know, a jovial mood, uh, you know, life of the party, so to speak. Uh, but nobody really knew what he was dealing with on the inside. Right. Um, you know, and so, and I think that his loss uh, opened the doors for, for some of those conversations to be had as well. Agreed. Agreed. So back to what, you know, your, your question about yeah. the work that we're doing with the American foundation for suicide prevention. So there, there's a, you know, there's a number of different angles and, and parts to that, uh, uh, that question and I'll uh, unpack it hopefully in a, um, you know, somewhat methodical manner. But um, so, <laughs> so what happened was, you know, we, we became involved with, you know, AFSP through that walk, we became, uh, you know, uh, acclimated to them and got to know them a little bit more. And we got involved on the local level, which was great. Um, and then the following year after his death, uh, his the company that my brother-in-law worked for uh, approached us and said, you know, we want to do something. And they were very understanding through the whole process when he was sick and even, you know, post his, uh, his death. And they said, we want to do something. And we ended up putting together a golf outing. And we started this golf outing in his name. And, uh, you know, if your listeners want to learn more about Keith's story, they could just go to keithmilano.org and we have it all there for, for them to see. 
We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. And now back to Focused on Forward. Well, we started this golf outing and my wife and I started the Keith Milano Memorial Fund, which was housed at AFSP. And through this golf outing and other charitable endeavors after that, we've raised personally in excess of about a million and a half dollars for the organization. Um, the golf outing lasted about 10 years. And then for the last six or seven, uh, we actually have a fundraiser during Mental Health Awareness Month in May, where we have a number of authors, about 30 to 40 authors from the romance community, romance author community that donate a portion of their proceeds to the uh, Keith Milano Memorial Fund. Uh, it's a long story how oh, we got cool. Yeah, we had an author about six or seven years ago approach us said, hey, I'm having a new book coming out in May. Would you mind if I donated a portion of my proceeds to your brother and your brother-in-law's fund? We're like, no, sure, that'd be great. Oh, no, we hate it. that. Please don't. <laughs> right, right. And it ended up taking on a life of its own because other authors started hearing about it, talking about it, and it grew you know, exponentially where this coming May of uh, you know, May 2021, we'll have 30 to 40 different authors uh, that are going to be donating a portion of their proceeds to the fund. Oh, cool. Yeah. So it's great. So that's one area. The, the second area that we've been heavily involved in is I became involved on the national level with the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention, and I currently sit on their national board. Uh, I've been a board member for about the last 11 or 12 years. I sit on their finance committee, um, you know, and... Um, we do a lot of good work. The, the organization itself has a couple of key programs that I like uh, highlighting. One is they have a, um, a Survivor's Day, which is basically uh, the, the Saturday before Thanksgiving. It's an opportunity for people that have suffered from a loss uh, or those that are suffering to get together for a common program. And then they break out into um, into groups of like kind. So you have mothers who've lost children, you have fathers, and basically it's just a day of healing, uh, which is a great opportunity for people to get together and know that they're not alone, especially as we start entering the holiday time. Uh, right. we also, we also have a program called uh, healing conversations where we have chapters in every, uh, state. Uh, at least one in every state. And if somebody does suffer a loss, uh, we have volunteers that are trained in all locations that if asked, we can send out, uh, again, people who have similar losses. So if somebody lost a child or somebody lost a parent, we would send somebody who also lost a child or lost a parent just simply to sit with that family because they've been in their shoes and to help them walk through and start processing what oh, that's, that's awesome. all about. Yeah. No, really, uh, that that's fantastic. Yeah, I mean, that I find that that's probably one of the most rewarding programs that we have. You know, hopefully it goes out of business soon and we don't need it. But uh, until that would be great until we do, that's that's there. And then, you know, the largest one of the largest pieces of our funding goes towards research where we're actually funding research grants and research studies that our scientists are working on discovering, uh, you know, different things about the brain. And uh, they, they each have their own uh, mandate and they come to us and we go through a vetting process. Um, you know, last year, I think we basically funded close to five or $6 million in research uh, 
studies. So that's how we were founded. Uh, so those are like the highlights of what we're doing. I think that one of the things that one of the initiatives that they have right now, which is really exciting, is uh, they are in the process of what's called Project 2025, which is they've made a, an audacious goal to lower the suicide rate by 20% by the year 2025. And they're focusing in on about five different areas of focus that have the highest rates of suicide and start chipping away at those areas to try to reduce uh, the rates in those specific areas. So a lot of good things going on there. And then uh, lastly, just to give the listeners an idea, you know, we've raised this money, this million and a half dollars that I spoke about earlier, and some of the things that we've been passionate about and how we've helped deploy some of that capital uh, to do some good is uh, we funded a high school film for, for high schoolers about you know mental health and, and what they should look out for. Nice. We, helped fu- we helped fund a, uh, a film that was specifically geared about bipolar disorder. Um, and then probably the, the, we funded a few research studies or grants when, when approached. And I think the largest share of money that we've uh, deployed from that fundraising effort is through a platform called Seize the Awkward, which um, is basically a uh, social media-driven uh, ad campaign, if you will, that's predominantly on uh, Instagram. And it's geared towards kids, teenagers. And basically the premise is that if you see a friend or somebody you know, and you think there might be an issue, more or less seize the awkward don't feel uncomfortable that you might lose the relationship if you ask them the wrong thing. Take the risk and ask them anyway, because you may be saving somebody's life. Um, And I think that that's a pretty bold takeaway and something that our teenagers and youngsters really should be empowered with in order to make sure that a friend's okay. They should not be concerned with risking a friendship to potentially save a life. So those are just kind of, you know, in a, in a nutshell, some of the things that we've done and, and through the uh, American Foundation for Suicide Prevention that we're very proud of. No, and you absolutely should be. Those are fantastic. That is, that is awesome stuff. Okay. So Larry, where's the best way for people to be able to find out how to donate to uh, the foundation or uh, the organization rather, and, and, or get any more information on how they can participate in some of the, your upcoming events? Yeah. So if they go to AFSP.org, AdamFrankSamPaul.org, uh, that is the uh, website for the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention. You can find a listing of all the chapters that we have across the country. You put in your zip code, it'll tell you what the nearest one is. Uh, typically, uh, again, in a non-COVID year, we have a community walk in each of those locations. Everything's been uh, converted to virtual. Um, but uh, there are still opportunities for people to get together and have those conversations and, and raise money. There's obviously donation links right on there. And then, you know, if, again, if you want to learn more about, you know, Keith's story, keithmilano.org, and there's a, uh, you know, a, a donate now button there as well that you can make a uh, donation directly to the memorial fund that's held at AFSP as well. Okay, excellent. Well, when we post this, I'll make sure that we include those links so people are able to find them and and uh, hopefully uh, donate a little bit as well. That'd be awesome. Sure. 
Okay. So I have a couple questions for you that I like to ask every single guest that's ever graced the microphone here. So looking back over the entirety of your story what with you know Keith and then also post Keith, what is the great the greatest lesson that you have learned? Yeah, I mean, I think that the greatest lesson that I have learned is that people die from mental illness. Um, it was something that I did not, I, I don't think it ever dawned on me because I never was exposed to anybody who died by suicide. Um, I had people in my life that were diagnosed with, for example, uh, anxiety, maybe even some depression, but never in a million years up until the point of his passing did I think that it could be or potentially be fatal. And, uh, you know, that is a, a lesson that I've learned and, um, you know, something that I'm actively looking to change and, you know, make uh, and have an effect on, uh, on the world. Okay, excellent. Now, the second question is, is similar in form to the first question, but it's not exact. It's, it's a very close cousin, though. Well, we'll, let's go with okay. that. What is the single greatest piece of advice that you were given that you still use today? It's a good question. Um, in, in my entire life. Entire I mean, life, yeah. Pay yourself first. <laughs> but that's that's the business I'm in. So, you know, that's that's the one that's really memorable. Um, but, you know, I, I think if you go back even further, it's treat other people like you'd want to be treated. Um, I think that's key. And I think that plays into and really resonates here because in a lot of ways, you know, with social media the way it is, people people are very brave behind a keyboard. Um, you know, people are very brave in in uh, text messaging. But you know, listen, everybody has their own struggle. You don't know necessarily what it is, uh, and you may never know. But uh, and you may never even realize by just looking at them, like you said earlier. So, you know, treat everybody like you would want to be treated. And I think that the world would be a better place if everybody kind of followed that mantra. Excellent. Okay. Now, I also know that you uh, do a podcast yourself. So, um, although it's not in the same lane as what we're talking about right now, why don't you take a minute and share with, with the audience what your podcast is and, and what it's about? Yeah, sure. Thank you for that. Yeah, I, I have a show called the Midland Money Mindset, which uh, Midland is uh, my my firm, which is a uh, wealth management firm. And, uh, you know, we concentrate predominantly on money and mindset and businesses. You know, I think people, there are certain people that kind of get uh, afraid of the show because they think it's money, uh, you know, money driven because it's Midland money mindset. But we concentrate on a lot of different topics. Uh, money happens to be probably covered in maybe one of every 10 shows. Uh, I'm very about mindset and abundance mindset. I also talk a lot about mental health and have guests on that talk about mental health. Uh, recently, I had on uh, Elijah Holder, who's a defensive back for the Denver Broncos. Nice. And uh, yeah, he, uh, he uh, under the NFL's My Cleats, My Cause, he wore cleats uh, for that event, uh, sponsoring or 
I guess, uh, advertising the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention because he himself lost a very good friend in high school and he's very open about it. So, you know, those are things that we talk about. And I I think, you know, we talk about businesses and, and, you know, I just interviewed uh, two gals who took a college project and turned it into a business that's now generating or generated $5 million in revenue. Wow. 25 years old. And what was the mindset in order to take a college project and actually implement it? So all all good stuff. And, you know, we will have a focus in the month of May on mental health because I think that's important. And that's a huge passion of mine. So uh, absolutely tune in. And if you like what you hear, you know, leave us a comment, leave us a review. I'd love to love to have them. Yeah. Now I did notice too, because I did a little bit of light stalking, uh, <laughs> that you're having on, uh, uh, men on Riom. We just, are. And I just, I'm pretty sure I just slotted her name and I feel really bad about that. Um, but, uh, yeah, she was, uh, for those who aren't sure who that is, that's the, 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 the only woman to ever play goaltender or any position in the NHL. Uh, she played for the Tampa Bay lightning for a while and, uh, yeah, so it's a pretty interesting story. So what will you be talking with uh, Manon about? Uh, we talked with Manon about what it took to be the first female in uh, in the NHL and to sign a contract and, you know, how she kind of paved the road for the growth with regard to women's hockey and Excellent. the growth, you know, the growth of women in sports in general. I mean, if you look at, you know, now we're, 20 years, you know, 20 plus years removed from that event. And uh, now, you know, you saw a female ref, uh, referee in the Super Bowl. Mm-hmm. We're seeing uh, females take, uh, you know, seats in very high places within sports organizations. You know, there's been this like crash through the glass ceiling in in industries and areas where they were predominantly male driven. And now you're seeing a lot of female presence. And if, if you really draw the lines back, it really, a lot of it goes back to 1997 when she signed that contract with the Tampa Bay lightning. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. That's yeah. We're, we're in a pretty cool time where we're getting to see a lot of this stuff kind of happen. And, and uh, you know, for someone who's raising a daughter, you know, Mm -hmm. how cool is it to be able to say, you know, you know, look, you know, you, that may have been an issue before, but look what you can do. There's nothing stopping you. There's nothing holding you back. So, you know, the chance to, for them to be able to say, I can live that dream as well. So how cool is that? It's all good stuff. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, uh, Larry, I I just want to say thank you for, for stopping by today and having a chat with us and, and talking with us. We're, we're so glad to have had you. It's, it's been a pleasure, Tim. And, you know, for all your listeners out there, if they're affected themselves or know somebody who's affected, the only thing I will tell them is, you know, say something. It's okay. There are people that will listen and they're going to listen without judgment. And the whole idea is just go and get the help and the support that you need. And just like anything else, if you do what you need to do, you can get through it and, and focus on the forward is uh, what I would tell them. So thank you again for the time and the opportunity. I appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. This is a, you know, a very big thing that people need to pay closer attention to. If you are struggling though, and you're listening to this and, and you're identifying some things in yourself that you're, you're struggling with, we, we want to make sure that you do know that there is help available. You can call anytime, 24 hours a day, 1-800-273-8225. That's the suicide uh, prevention hotline. 
someone will be there. They'll talk to you. They don't judge you. They don't, they don't, they care, but they don't care why you called. They care that you did call. So uh, make sure that if you need that number again, it's 1-800-273-8255. So thanks everyone for listening. And that's going to conclude us today for Focused on Forward.